My dad told me when I was very young that if I really wanted to be successful in skiing, I had to be a lot more than a ski racer. She decided at nine years old that she wanted to join the Olympics. And ever since, she's become the most decorated female skier of all time. I grew up skiing with my family and that's why I loved it. It originated just from the pure love of the mountain, not for racing. What tips would you give to someone? What would you tell someone to say to themselves in those difficult moments? You know, we have the ability to overcome a lot of adversity and obstacles. It's just a matter of how much we're willing to sacrifice to get there. We are our own biggest obstacle. Loaf. This is the Loaf Podcast. Welcome back to the bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're very lucky to be here with Lindsay Vaughn. She decided at nine years old that she wanted to join the Olympics uh, for skiing. And ever since, she's become the most decorated female skier of all time and a best-selling author of two books. Lindsay, thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. How you doing? I'm pretty well. How are you guys? Yeah, good. Thank you. I saw you were um, skiing with Ted Ligeti quite recently. <laughs> was that in America? How was that? Yeah, I was in Deer Valley. Um, I actually just randomly ran into him in the mountain. I was like, why don't we oh, yeah. take a run together? I actually don't know if we ever have taken a run together. So it was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. How are you finding uh, free skiing? I know you said it took you a while to adjust after retirement. You're uh, You're enjoying it? I mean, it's definitely not as fast and I'm not, you know, the adrenaline rush is definitely not the same as going, you know, 85 miles an hour down a downhill, but you know, it's fun to ski with friends and, um, kind of get back to my roots. You know, I, I mm -hmm. grew up skiing with my family and that's why I loved it. it. You know, it originated just from the pure love of the mountain, not for racing. So it's, it's definitely fun to be back, but I, I miss, I miss downhill for sure. <laughs> that's, that's great. And before we kind of get into, uh, the more meaty, uh, parts of, of the interview, we, we, we like to start our interview with, with a general question. Um, we'll call it the loaf podcast and we, we have a bread theme running through. If we did this in person, we might break bread together and eat it. Uh, but anyway, since it's online, we, we like to ask what your favorite bread is. Um, I actually really love, um, like English muffins better than, I don't know, maybe bread. I just actually had a cinnamon, maybe it's sacrilegious to have a cinnamon, um, Thomas's, but I had a Thomas's English muffin. Do you guys have crumpets? Have you ever had crumpets? Yeah, yeah crumpets yeah. and scones. Crumpets are, are, I always had them in New Zealand and I'm, I don't know, again, like maybe that's not bread per se, but yeah. we'll, we got, we'll, um, we'll allow it. <laughs> okay, it's yeah. allowed. Okay, good. <laughs> we got crumpets. We got, um, the big thing in England is English muffins. They're pretty similar. Yeah. But, you know, we like to put our stamp on it. It's, it's the classic American UK beef. Yeah. Um, I'm down for it. I'm, I'm down for <laughs> yeah. it. English muffins are my jam. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to drop you in a word from our sponsor, Manscaped. You can use the discount code LOAF to get your discount because even a lion needs to tame its mane. Get the performance package 5.0 Ultra from Manscaped now. Stay fresh with no cuts so that your baguette leaves no crumbs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, great. But now for the, for the maybe a bit more heavy stuff, we, we were big fans and we did a lot of research uh, before this interview, but maybe for our listeners, for those who might not know you or only know you by name, uh, we were wondering who is Lindsay Vaughn and maybe you could introduce yourself a little bit. 
Uh, who is Lindsay Vaughn? I am just a girl from Minnesota. Um, very hardworking, ambitious, driven, uh, tend to not ever let anything stand in my way, uh, was a racer. And now I'm more of a businesswoman philanthropist. Um, but also dog mom. I love, I love dogs, animals. If I wasn't a ski racer, I'd probably be, um, a veterinarian or something like that. So <laughs> That's pretty much yeah. me in a nutshell. Also clumsy. <laughs> um, fun fact. So <laughs> it's funny that you're clumsy as a ski racer, but um, I'd say your your trademark maybe um, as a ski racer, and you say this in your book, is that you, you don't put much emphasis on the talent really, but on the hard work um, and on that mental toughness. So when you first won Olympic gold, for example, you had a shin injury, you've torn your ACL. Um, you know, for example, you you lost feeling in your hand for a while. Um, and that's something that I admire. And I think it's something that everybody can, can take out, but you said that it's something that kind of somebody has, or they don't for somebody who has it maybe, but it's looking to cultivate it. What tips would you give to someone? What would you tell someone to say to themselves, uh, in those difficult moments? I mean, I think, you know, most of us don't give our mind enough credit. You know, we have the ability to overcome a lot of adversity and obstacles. It's just a matter of how much we're willing to, to sacrifice to get there and how much work we're willing to put in. Um, you know, grit is, I think the biggest determining factor of success in any avenue of life, whether that's in business or in sports, um, because generally the most successful people are not the most talented, but they're always the, the hardest working. Um, and grit is actually my favorite book by Angela Duckworth and pretty much sums up my whole life motto in, in a book. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you're, you know, trying to achieve something, I just, think that you shouldn't let anything stand in your way. And most of the time we are our own biggest obstacle. So we have to, you know, lean into ourselves and have that self-belief. And if you don't have that, then you're probably not going to make it. <laughs> okay. So if someone doesn't have grit, is it, is it then just over for them in terms of like no, being an athlete? It's definitely not over, but you know, I've seen so many athletes with so much talent and, they never really made it anywhere because the second that they faced any type of adversity, they, it wasn't as easy as they thought it was. And they, and they would quit or give up and, and, um, not try as hard. So I think it's, it's not as though that you, if you don't have talent, you can't be six or if you do have talent, you won't be successful, but you have to have that ability to be able to work hard, you know, through obstacles. And, and it just happens that most talented people want the easier route. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's quite a relatable, relatable thing. There are so many people who maybe have the potential, but they just don't have that grit to to actualize it. And yeah. Um, and yeah, you're someone who talks a lot about um, mental mental uh, health, mental wellness, and its relation to physical um, wellness. And as as a podcast that's really mental health focused, Ollie and I have spoken to lots of advocates and and worked with charities. We were we we're wondering about your mental health journey as, as someone who's quite vocal about these kind of topics. Yeah. I mean, you know, I started traveling by myself when I was nine and I lived, you know, away from my family already when I was 15, 16 years old. So, you know, I, you know, I was a little isolated. And when I was 18, um, you know, trying to figure myself out, I was really depressed. And I finally, you know, went to see a doctor and, you know, I was diagnosed with depression. And I think, you know, for me, it's been a journey figuring out you know, how do I keep that balance where I'm not getting too low? And and when you're isolated, you know, I think a lot of people think that just because I have success, 
that means I'm surrounded by people and I'm always happy. And that's absolutely not the case. You know, I'm, I would win and I would be, you know, doing interviews and then I would come home to my hotel and be completely alone. And, and it's a, it's a pretty shallow feeling. Um, and I think for me, what helped the most was journaling. You know, I didn't, because I didn't have anyone to talk to. Um, and when I was growing up, you know, a psychologist was not something that you did, especially, uh, when you were a professional athlete, it just was kind of a sign of weakness. So I just kind of internalized everything and I, I would get my emotions out by writing them down in my journal. So I think we all just need to figure out, you know, how do we find that balance and what does that mean for us? And as individuals, you know, everyone's journey is different. Um, I sometimes just need space and, be with my dogs and watch Law and Order, you know, whatever silly show that just kind of resets me. And I found those, you know, triggers that that helped me the most. Um, and, you know, obviously talking to psychologists is incredibly helpful. And since I retired, I've found a really great one. Um, it's been been really a great journey, but but I think we're always evolving. You know, mental health is a constant journey and it's never there's never one solution. It's you know, how do we figure our own selves out and how do we find that balance? So, yeah, you said about spending a lot of time alone, something that surprised me about, um, I've sort of watched ski racing quite a bit growing up. I did it not so seriously, at least not so seriously as you when I was younger, but what surprised me, um, reading your book is kind of about how you're basically driving yourself around and for a sport that's so popular, it's interesting how not grassroots, so to, so to speak, but it's interesting how lonely it can be and how you're sort of doing a lot of it yourself. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting sport, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of interest in Europe and it is quite popular in a lot of places, but you know, just how it's structured and set up and how we go from place to place and race every weekend. And it's in the Alps, you know, it's not like, you know, you need to fly everywhere. So obviously driving is the best, um, best mode of transportation, but you know, when, like I said before, when the dust settles, when, after you've won the race, there's, there's really no one else, you know? And, and I think that is actually true for, for a lot of sports. It just maybe isn't as travel intense or, you know, you're not necessarily driving by yourself. And I think some of those, those, you know, solitary moments were also really important for me to figure out, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? Cause you really have to figure out the love and the passion for the sport. If you don't, you don't love what you're doing, those moments will eat you alive. And, you know, so you figure, you have to figure out, you know, what's driving me, what's motivating me. And, and that will help mm-hmm. a lot. And that did for me. Yeah. And how have you seen, have you seen sort of the skiing scene change? I mean, you were one of the first to have like a big personal brand. You had Peekaboo Street before you. Now in Britain, we kind of have um, Dave Riding as one of our yeah. first, our first big skiers. Thankfully, um, how have you seen it change? Is there sort of a bigger team around people now? Um, it's interesting. I think Dave's done a really great job, and um, I think I think it's actually been broken down to more uh, individual teams. You know, it's instead of these, you know, nations that are all grouping together to train, it's, you know, private coaches and more individualized programs, which I think is really great for individual athletes. But when you look at the teams as a whole and how the sport, you know, needs to evolve and meaning, you know, how do we gain more, more athletes, you know, especially in the U.S., how do we get more people to be involved in skiing? I think that 
it lacks democratization. You know, it it really mm-hmm. elevates the elite and, and makes it more challenging for, you know, people like me. You know, I grew up in Minnesota and I didn't have money. And um, I was lucky enough to make the team when I was 15 and was financially supported from then on out. Now mm-hmm. we don't have that. You know, now you have to be on the World Cup in order to get any sort of funding. And, you know, a lot of the girls that are and men that are on uh, the Europa Cup team are having to pay, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. So I think it's evolving in maybe a, a not ideal way from that financial perspective. But you are seeing incredibly talented people, you know, come up because they have a more individualized program. Mm. Yeah. In terms of grassrootsness, I think what's helped a lot in the UK is kind of dry slope coming about. Yeah. Um, But what what ways do you think we can kind of try and remove those barriers to try and get more people into skiing as a sport? Uh, Is it funding? Is it like getting more people on the slopes? What's there? Yeah, I mean, I do think like the 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 summer skiing and the the ski domes um, have helped a lot, especially in Europe. Um, we do have one ski dome in the U.S. in New Jersey, and I think people are just starting to figure out um, that that's a good place to go. Um, before it was really just a tourist attraction um, in a mall, and I think you know we're starting to capitalize on that on that space. But you know, I think the biggest issue is cost in general. Even just for a lift ticket in the United States, you know, it's two hundred fifty dollars um, per day, which is crazy, and. Um, I think there, there is some, some progress, I think with, you know, Park City Ski Academy, they have an actual a charter school, which is, so it's free for everyone and same in Vail, you know, so there, there are those kind of charter school situations where we're able to ski and go to school and not pay a fortune. And I think if we can get more of those going and, um, you know, maybe there can be like a youth um, program on every mountain where, you know, if you're at a certain age or you're in a race program, you get a discount on passes, you know, things like that. I think it, we need to try to make it more accessible. Um, well, you know, still they can, the resorts can make money off of, you know, tourism, but we have to also be aware that we need ski racing for the sport of skiing as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a racer or, or really a skier. I've only been once and uh, I went to France with Ollie and, and a bunch of other friends and it was really fun. But oh, nice. for those who do, for those who do ski, uh, you've you spoken actually... a little bit about, no, go ahead, Ollie. Sorry, just just to cut in a funny story. He actually got us stuck. I don't know how well you know, like the the three valleys. I'm sure you do. Yeah. But we um we tried to take him. We were staying in Valterens on like the um the Oxford ski trip, and we took him to Maribel, nice. and it took us too long. <laughs> we we had stuck. to get a taxi back. Yeah, we got stuck. It's actually a long way, and you have to, if you have a taxi back, that's a, that's not a short taxi ride. I know it was, it was really like expensive. his fourth day as well, so it's kind of that's my bad as much as his, but yeah, we got did stuck. You get, did you uh, stop at Folle Deuce in Maribel and just, uh, and stay there? <laughs> I don't know. We got to the, we got to the bottom. It was like one of those smaller villages in Maribel. I think it wasn't yeah. even the proper one Took a while to find. No, we did basically, no, we didn't get to Folle Deuce, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. So it was more of a trap situation. It wasn't even like a fun, fun trapped. Okay. I got it. Yeah. We had World Cup finals in Maribel. Um, I think in 2016. And then I actually, that was my, the first place I went on a ski vacation when I retired was, um, Courchevel and we skied, we skied the three valleys. It was, it was really fun, but, uh, you need a better ski guide. I think next time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's an amazing, an amazing activity. It's just beautiful because you're surrounded by nature, but just to come back to what I was saying, you're, you're an advocate for mental health and someone who's who's really wants to inspire confidence in other people and i was wondering how we how you can square that with 
with maybe the fact that you've also said we shouldn't really give away maybe participation medals. So people should really work for, for medals, which I agree with. And I think that the culture of giving, you know, people a trophy for participating isn't really conducive to, to building a really good competition. Yeah. I was wondering how you square those, how you can, how we can like inspire yeah. confidence in, in those trying to race, but also not give, give out handouts. Well, I think that, you know, sports, the, the main thing that sports teach us, especially as kids is, is, you know, when you fall, get back up. You know, if you, if you don't make the soccer team, we, we train harder and we, we try again, you know, failure is a part of sports and it teaches us that failure is okay. You know, we learn from our failures and we grow and we get better. And I think it's, you know, you obviously have to have good coaches and a support system, you know, parents or you know, someone that's telling you, you know, this is good. This is a good thing. You know, it's okay. We're going to get better. It's not, you know, the end of the world. This isn't something to be sad about. This is a learning experience. And so I think you need people to ingrain that kind of positive reinforcement within kids without having to give them a participation trophy. You know, you don't, you don't need to, you know, reward people or kids, you know, when they, when they just are there, you know, there, there's a reason why there's a winner and there's a second place and a third place, you know, it, it, it inspires you hopefully to be better. You know, how do I work harder? And, um, again, it's that overcoming adversity, it's that grit and those lessons will translate into life. But if you're always set, if you're always told that, well, if you show up, you get, you, you get a reward, not if you work hard, you get a reward, you know, it, it, it needs, there's two separate things going on there. And I think you just really need to focus on the hard work. And that's, again, it's all how it's being portrayed by the coaches and by the parents that really set it apart as being a, a life lesson or, you know, something that could potentially derail you from a mental health perspective. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I think also one of the, one of the big issues with that is, um, particularly the stories that men and women are told. And I know this is something you talk about a lot, but I think that competition, like you say, is encouraged less in women. And ski yeah. racing is the exception to where there's actually pretty much even participation or at least even viewing um, at the top level. But how do you think we can change the story for young girls so that they can become uh, more interested in competition and, in, and being their best? Yeah, I think the idea of what a woman should be is definitely changing. Um, you know, I think we don't have to stay at home and be, be, you know, stay at home moms to be successful. And, um, you know, I think that message is getting down, is trickling down so that, you know, young girls, you know, are okay with being competitive. You know, it's, it's okay to be fierce and strong, but also feminine. And I think that's more of a society issue. Um, and I think again, sports and to your point, ski racing is a good example of, you know, how it can be more equal, but there still is a long way to go. Um, and even if you just look at, you know, pay disparagement between, you know, women and men, and especially in the United mm -hmm. States and, WNBA and the NBA, you know, there's a, there's a big gap between how people perceive women and men's sports. Um, but I think, you know, women's tennis is also a great example, you know, women's viewership on the finals were sometimes, and especially with Serena, a lot better than the men's. And it just takes, you know, it takes a strong character and competitiveness and people really leaning in to tell those stories. You, you also need the media to stand behind, you know, and, and really lean into those strong female voices, which I think they are. And there's definitely, 
you know, like I said, a lot of strong females currently that are are changing that perspective for young girls. I mean, you've definitely been a part of that, which is amazing. But I find I find it interesting that skiing and it's a positive thing, but I find it interesting that skiing is one of the ones where um, there is almost that equal viewership, um, given that it's such like a fierce sport and you're flying, you know, flying down the mountain. What do you think? What do you think the reasons are behind that? Maybe. Or I think honestly, downhill is, you know, a very dangerous sport. I think men respect that on the women's side. You know, right. I, I think, um, there's a definitely always a level of entertainment and thrill and risk that that comes with it. So whether it's men or women, you're still getting that same kind of entertainment value, so to speak. Um, and again, I think, you know, what I found is, in my career, at least, is that a lot of men, you know, uh, respect me for, you know, getting injured and continuing to throw myself down a mountain at 85 miles an hour. Um, and that gets people to watch, you know, that they think that that's, you know, something worth, worth caring about. So, um, I think that's one of the reasons. Um, but also I think there's some great rivalries, you know, there, it depends on who's racing and if there are, if there's a good story to be told, then, then people pay attention. And thankfully, I think over the past few years, women have had great stories and, you know, whether it's myself and Maria Reich or, you know, Michaela and Petra Volhova, there's a lot of, you know, kind of head to head rivalries that help stimulate that, that viewership. Um, and men, I mean, obviously everyone's going to watch Kitzbühel no matter what, <laughs> no matter who's competing, but Odermont definitely, definitely helps their cause a lot. Yeah, the rivalries are definitely pushed by the media. I know you said, for example, like, and I, I remember at the time, like the rivalry between you and Maria Reich was really pushed to a huge extent, um, maybe yeah. a bit too far. How yeah. do you think that sports journalism can become a bit more responsible? Because I know like even in, there's loads of people who speak out in all sports, football yeah. as well. Um, I know about, you know, negative journalism impacting mental health. How do you think that can be made a bit more responsible? I mean... I think there's a line, you know, obviously I think when it comes to sports and the actual story of sports and creating those rivalries, I may have a different opinion than others. I think it's really good. I think you need those storylines mm -hmm. to generate, you know, people to care and pay attention. But I think there's a, a line um, when it comes to personal attacks and, you know, you see journalists who are asking, I know friends who play tennis and they talk about their weight and who they're dating and that those storylines don't help anyone's mental health and they don't help sell the sport. You know, I think that, that those conversations that, you know, again, tell the story can be focused purely on sport and why we should care about the sport, not on, you know, what their physical appearance is. And, and men don't get those types of questions. Um, you know, I, I outside of the fact of like Grigor Dimitrov or, you know, when Nadal takes his shirt off, you know, but generally speaking, those types of like personal, potentially mentally health challenging questions are geared towards women that can be very detrimental. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how, how when a man is, is, is really strong and, and physically tough, it's really glorified. Whereas if it's a woman, sometimes it comes with a lot of stigma as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Serena is a great example of that you know, she's been made out to be, you know, this kind of, I don't know, beast or, you know, some, some, something along those lines. And she's, she can still be incredibly feminine, but, you know, a lot of times when, you know, she's, she's yelling at the umpire or there's, you know, heated, heated words being said, she gets incredibly criticized. Whereas, you know, McEnroe was like the number one, 
you know, shit talker in the world. Yeah. And he's absolutely glorified for it. So I think there's a, a middle ground where, you know, uh, we can let out our emotions while still being appropriate because I do, and I am always conscious of what image I'm portraying for the next generation. You know, I, I, I've always known that, you know, I, I need to set a good example for kids. So I, I always find that there, there can be a middle ground where you can be aggressive, um, aggressive and, you know, put your heart on your sleeve and, and be impactful without, you know, crossing that line. But, you know, women, women definitely aren't, you know, we, in society, we don't feel that they should, they should be in that role, but I really think you can be both. I really think you can be a competitor, a true competitor and also incredibly feminine. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think part of the issue is that the gender stereotypes around femininity require kind of weakness, um, yeah. or at least, at least historically. And I think that's where, where it stems from, but, but to come back to, you mentioned branding and narrative. I was, I was wondering what, what, how, why you think your branding was so successful? Do you think it was kind of the ability for you to fight through injuries or, or just your sheer talent? What do you think really made, made you such a, a successful brand? Um, well, I mean, my dad, you know, told me when I was very young, I think I was 11 or 12, that if I really wanted to be successful in skiing, I had to be a lot more than a ski racer. So I kind of have always taken the business side, um, to heart, you know, and I've always worked exceptionally hard off the mountain, just like I do on. And I've been always authentic to myself and my story. I've been maybe sometimes too opinionated, but I'm never afraid to speak my mind. And I think sometimes in sports, um, especially to our point of, you know, women have to fitting into fit into a certain role. I think a lot of women do put themselves in that role and and put themselves in the box and don't allow themselves to be, you know, who they really are. And so, you know, I, I'm thankful that I've had the courage to just be myself. Um, and I think that's led me, you know, on the journey, obviously, of overcoming the adversity of my injuries. And I think why people resonate with that story, because, you know, I was very vulnerable. I shared kind of all sides of, of those recoveries. And I think in my documentary, you can really see who I am as a person. And it really, you know, like most, most famous or, you know, uh, successful sports stories are really not about sports. You know, if you look at Rocky, it's, it's not about boxing. So, you know, I think people recognize me as a person. Um, and that, you know, they feel that if I can overcome my adversity, they can too. So it really I think comes down to, to that and not necessarily branding. It's just me as a person and how I've been able to translate that, um, to a relatable story that in turn also allows my sponsors to capitalize on that as well. Yeah. I think being more than skiing, like you say, has probably helped your transition into retirement a lot. I know, I know like, a a lot of sports people struggle with that. So I guess you'd advise them to get started on that, like as, as early as possible. Yeah. I mean, again, my dad, he always said that, you know, every athlete has an end point, you know, we physically can't continue on forever, no matter how strong or how successful we are. And you have to be prepared for that. Um, and even though I was prepared, I still wasn't prepared, you know, it's, it's a hard transition. It's, uh, you know, I love, as I said in the beginning, I love going fast. And even though skiing is my passion and what I love to do, it's still different when I'm, you know, free skiing as opposed to going 85. And so I miss it. And while I was 
prepared from a business perspective, you know, mentally, I think it was a lot harder of a transition. And I struggled with my mental health for, you know, probably a year and a half. Just to to close off in, in any case, because we know that you're really busy and we really appreciate your time. But you've you've done so much recently. I mean, you've started the Lindy, Lindsay Vaughn Foundation. Even while you were skiing, you, you did that. And you've two best-selling books. What's What's next for you? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm trying to find a challenge that stimulates me as much as ski racing did, which I've not found anything yet. I mean, I have my own production company now. Um, we have a deal with CBS studios, so we're trying to get some TV shows and movies into production. Um, I, like you said, I have my foundation, which I'm very passionate about. Uh, I have my ski line with head. So I'm designing, you know, all of the, my ski collection every year, um, I also have, I'm a part owner of Unique Goggles, which Dave Riding is actually on our team. He's wearing the, our oh, goggles, nice. which is really fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do a lot of public speaking and, and I don't know, I, again, I kind of fill my plate to, to try to challenge myself and see how many things I can juggle at the same time. But uh, nothing will ever be uh, a downhill race, unfortunately. Yeah, well, look, you sound busy, but if you got any free time, uh, we lost to Cambridge last year in our Oxford skiing race. So oh, if you no. want to come down to Sasfe anytime in August, we can Ooh, pay you back Sasfe. in gratitude, maybe. Yeah. Hey, don't tempt me with a good time. Just do downhill <laughs> or just Jess and Slalom? No, Jess and Slalom. It's not, it's not really... Well, basically... We have like a first, second, and third team, and some people in the thirds have like never raced before. So downhill is okay. Downhill a little bit a little, irresponsible. Yeah. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did win some slalom and GS World Cup, so maybe if you need a if you need a um, a backup racer, I can. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you. Uh, uh, we'll keep in touch. We'll keep in touch. Okay. But um, sounds good. Thank you so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been really fun. We wish we could have talked to you for longer. Uh, maybe we can in the future, but I wanted to know if you had any concluding thoughts for our audience, uh, anything you want to leave with? Um, I mean, I think, you know, everyone has the potential to be amazing in their own way. Um, you just have to have that stick to that grit and always be your number one cheerleader. Believe in yourself. That's it. That's all I got. Amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much. Lindsay. Thank you, guys. All the best. I appreciate it. No worries. This has been the Loaf Podcast, signing off.